0: Good morning. It's good to see you today, and we hope that you found yourself blessed. And uh, we're certainly glad that you've chosen to be here with us as we uh, start a new series. I guess it's been a continuing series, but we're kind of shifting gears. As Brother Nathan said, uh, we talked about loving God with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength, and that that is the greatest command. That that, That is the one command that supersedes them all. And so as we get into the second that Jesus says is like unto it, when we talk about loving our neighbor, uh, we're going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. And one of those fruits is love, and that's one of the first ones that he mentions. So going back to our reading this morning, and I appreciate Brother Riley reading that for us, Paul began uh, this sort of series of thoughts by saying, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. The heart of this discussion that he has here in Galatians chapter 5 is how do we overcome sin in our life? How is it that we keep ourselves from gratifying the ungodly desires that might be within our person? And he says it's really simple. You just walk in the Spirit. Well, okay. Walk in the Spirit and you won't commit sin in your life. You won't fulfill the, the desires that you have. You won't gratify your flesh. Well, Well, think about walking. What does walking mean? And when you think about this term that's translated walking here, it means to march in steps, sort of like we would see a bunch of soldiers that were continuing to walk on the same path together. So there's an indication here of a direction that one is heading and continues to head on as you walk in the Spirit. But it's more helpful really to look at... um, the next set of verses where he talks about the fruit of the Spirit to understand what he means. How do you know if you're walking in the Spirit? Well, because you're bearing a certain fruit in your life or results in your life, we might say. So he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, or long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. And then he says this, against such there is no law. Well, that's sort of peculiar, isn't it? Well, if you think back to what Brother Riley read for us about the works of the flesh, he talks about adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, so on. Those things are what we would call unlawful. There's a law against those things. And he says against these things, there is no law. These, not, these things are never unlawful. So what's that tell us about these fruits? It means that the exercising of these spiritual fruits in our life must be in line with the will of God. Could there actually be a realm of this that might be unlawful? Well, We'll talk about that as we get more in our lesson. But notice he says those who belong to Christ Jesus crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And this is a concept that you're going to see all throughout the writings of Paul that we've put to death the old man, that is, he no longer has life or energy or power in our life. And, and obviously that's figurative. There hasn't been a physical death that has occurred, but we have taken the passions, the drive, the will of that old carnal fleshly person, and we've put him in the grave. And now we're living a different way. We're walking a different way. And so he says if we live by the Spirit, notice there's a death, then there's a life. And he says if we're alive by the Spirit... Let us walk by the Spirit or in the Spirit. So, again, how do you know? It's about the fruit that you bear. And Jesus alluded to this in Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45. He says, For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. That seems very obvious. I mean, you don't walk up to a bramble bush and expect to get a harvest of grapes. And he's just making a simple point. The point is not the the real literal physical fruits he's talking. He's just using that as an analogy to say, look, you understand that a tree bears the the fruit of the nature of that tree. So you say, what do you mean by that? I mean this. Look at what he says in verse 45. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. (coughs) For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you remember, we talked about this verse a little bit a month ago. What Jesus is telling us is that the contents of a person's heart are known by what comes out of them, what fruit is in their life. So he said, you want to know what the heart is, you can tell by the fruit or the works of a person. So, have you ever heard somebody say, well, I I think of myself as a spiritual person? What does that mean? How do you know if you're a spiritual person? Well, here's how to know. You're bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And so if you have love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, if those are things that are coming out and they're abundant in your life then you're a spiritual person well what does that tell us well if we're not adding these things to our life if those things aren't in our heart and they're not the fruit that's coming out in our life we're not a spiritual person we're a fleshly or a carnal person. And that's really what Paul is saying here is that there's, there's two sides of us. There's a fleshly nature that we have, and then, and then there's the spirit that God's put within us. And, and that spiritual side of us is warring. As Brother Nathan said, we're in a warfare. We're warring against that flesh. And sometimes if we're not careful, we'll allow the flesh to start winning that battle. So how is it that love plays into this? Well, first we, firstly, we need to notice that love is the is the greatest of all these fruits you say well how can you just make that assumption well it's not an assumption Jesus said that he said the greatest command is to love God with all of your heart soul strength and mind and to love your neighbor so love is the greatest love supersedes all these other things and in fact most if not all of the fruits of the spirit actually flow out of that initial concept of love First Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I have become as a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. This is a very strong statement of Paul. And if, if you notice, some of the things that he mentions here, like tongue speaking... Uh, knowing prophecy, but not only knowing prophecy, but understanding everything that has not been yet revealed, and also having all knowledge and all faith. How much faith? So much faith that I could remove mountains. And he says, and I give everything that I own. I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I even give my body to be burned, which I guess would be the greatest sacrifice someone could make, he says, and have not love, it profits me nothing. So let's think back for a moment on this idea of, well, I'm a spiritual person. I'm a spiritual person. Well, would you think if you saw somebody that had this, that you, they would be a spiritual person? I would. I mean, if you just looked at the fruit of those things and said, man, this person, I mean, I mean they learned a different language just so they could communicate the gospel to people. And, and, and they're really versed in prophecy, and, and they understand all the mysteries of God, and they have all understood. You get the point. We'd say that's a spiritual person. But here's what Paul says. I could have all those things... Every one of those things to not have love. And what does that result in? Nothing. It results in nothing. So maybe you have joy and peace and goodness and and long suffering and all those other fruits, but you don't have love. Well, what does that result in? Nothing. And that's why I say love is the most important thing. But if we're going to know what uh, the fruit of the Spirit is when we talk about love, we got to know what love is. Because what often happens is we'll take every concept of love and we'll throw it into a blender. You say, what do you mean we throw it into a blender? I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of love. Not only are there different kinds of love and how we use the English word love, there's different kinds of love talked about in the Bible. But the love that he talks about here in Galatians 5 and also in 1 Corinthians 13 and the love that Jesus mentioned in our text in Mark chapter 12 that we've been studying is a specific type of love. And so let's talk about what love is this morning. So when we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, we're talking about godly love, that is agape love, or we want I want to call it this morning spiritual love. That love that is the fruit of the Spirit. Because there are types of love that may not necessarily be spiritual in and of themselves, but this love that he's talking about here is a spiritual love. It's a fruit of the Spirit. There's also family love, and that's called philly or Sometimes Philadelphia is used. (coughs) And what is Philadelphia called? The city of brotherly love. And oftentimes this is the word that's used that's translated into our word love. And you'll usually see it like love as brothers or brotherly love. Uh, But this is another type of love we see taught in Scripture. Another type of love that we see is storgos love. And this word storgos is only used one time in the New Testament. And we'll notice where it's used later. Uh, but this is a very common concept that the Greeks held. And the idea of storgos is this: it's that natural and instinctual love that parents have for their children. We'll talk about that more in detail in just a little bit. Self-love is another thing the Bible mentions, and it's the word phil altos." Okay, so phil, just like our word family love, phili autos, meaning self, the love of self. And then you have eros, which is erotic or romantic love. And uh, there was a Greek mythological god that was known to the Greeks, and his name was Eros. And we would probably know him as Cupid. That was the Roman equivalent of Eros. And he was the god that was said to infatuate people with another person. So that's the idea of erotic or romantic love. Now, I want to say this before we move forward. None of these things are wrong in and of themselves. None of these things are wrong in the right context but I think for our purposes to understand the distinctions between some of these loves and the love that Jesus calls us to the love that is the fruit of the spirit we have to kind of look at them not from 30,000 feet but get an up-close view of each one of these things so that we know their proper place so we're going to start with self-love and, you know, that has been something that, that is on a lot of people's minds today, the love of self. And I'll tell you why. Because a lot of people, they, they hate themselves. And, and I don't believe God wants us to hate ourselves or devalue ourselves. God wants us to value our life. He wants us to care for our bodies. He, he wants us to, to value our soul. And, you know, what if we didn't value our soul? We would probably, none of us would ever respond to the gospel, would we? But we have enough Self-love, enough care for ourselves that we, it moves us to pull ourselves out of the fire, if you will, in that way. So self-love is often justified, though, by this verse right here. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And someone says, well, see, you you got to love yourself first so you can know how to love others. And that's, that's become this nice little cute acronym now. First, love yourself. Others will come next. But that's sort of in opposition to what we've been learning from Jesus, that the greatest commandment is to do what? To, to love God and then to love our neighbor. And this verse here where he talks about loving your neighbor as yourself is predicated on the idea that we already all love ourselves. He's saying, no, love others as much as you love yourself. Love others like you love yourself. This is what we call the golden rule. It's the golden rule. Do unto others as what? You would have them do unto you. Why? Because we want good things for ourselves. We want blessings for ourselves. And so he's saying you need to view others the same way you view yourself. If you want good things for yourself, what should you want for other people? Good things. Jesus wasn't teaching a self-love here or a focus on self but was saying, you already love yourself. I want you to love others like you love yourself. And then this one has become very popular. Self-love is the most important kind of love. And again, I think that's very contradictory to what Jesus says there in Matthew uh, and also in Mark when he talks about the greatest commands. Loving yourself isn't vanity, it is sanity. Well, I will tell you, in some ways that's true. Um, In some ways that is true. When, When you hate yourself... You don't have a correct view of who you are because, number one, you're made in the image of God. You're made in the image of God. That means you have value. You have intrinsic value for what you are to Him. And if you don't believe you have value to God, then look at the cross of Jesus Christ because God said you have value. You have value. You have worth. Loving yourself will work miracles in your life. I'm, I'm not sure where this is really in line with the Bible. And this one kind of goes even further. The more we love ourselves, the more we blossom into the greatest version of ourselves. Now, do I think every one of these things, standing alone, that there's an element of truth to that? I absolutely do. But here's the problem. When we continue to follow this train of thought and we say self loves the most important love, love yourself first, I'll tell you what we do. We end up in a very self-centered place in our life where we feel like, well, you know what, I, I can't love that person. i got to love me first. And I, and I would love you, but I, I'm kind of tired, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to self-care first. And I'll tell you, that's really not the message of the New Testament. And if you don't believe that, just look at the life of Paul. Look at the life that he lived. And you think about Paul as he says, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love, the less I am loved. He said, I will sacrifice, I will give, of myself. Certainly there's an element of self-care that we all need to be aware of, but sometimes it goes too far. Now, Jesus not only talked and assumed that we loved ourselves. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 5:29, "For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church." He says it's just not logical to think that someone would hate themselves. It's a natural type of love we have. So, <coughs> Excuse me. The question is, how do we know when self-love has gone too far? Self-love is not wrong in and of itself, but can it go too far? And the answer is yes, it can go too far. Because self-love is really not spiritual love. It's just something that we naturally do a lot of times. So Philippians chapter 2, I think, will help us understand this. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. So, so here's what Paul writes. Paul says, okay, now here's the thing. You already esteem yourself a certain way, and you don't want that to be your motivator. You don't want to be doing things out of selfish ambition. So even when you do things for others, let's remove love from the, from the equation like Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 13. Let's say that I do good things for you, but my, my motivation, my ambition is really I'm doing good things for you because of how it benefits me. Is that done out of love? No, not really. And I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll do the bare minimum until I feel like it's finally blessed me to the point I want to be blessed. And then my am hands off. I'm hands off. Because it's about what we esteem as being most important. And he says you need to esteem others better than yourself and look out not only for your interests but for their interests. So yes, self-love can become way, it can go way too far to the point where people are egocentric and they only do good things for their own benefit. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. And this is actually the only the second and only time you're going to see Philautos in Scripture, the love of self. And it's here in 2 Timothy 3. And it's not a positive thing. It's not mentioned as a positive thing. He says, but realize this, then the last days difficult times will come for people will be lovers of self. And that's translated that way in every English translation that you'll find, lovers of self. He says lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, slanderers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable. And that means you you can't get them to be forgiving. He says malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such people as these. You say, why are we reading all this list? You could have just read lovers of self and we could have moved on. Well, here's what I want want us to think about. Lovers of self is the river by which all of these other things that he mentions flows. Because when somebody says, you know what, I'm going to love me first, you know what they're going to do? They're not going to love God the way they should. They're going to love pleasure. And they're going to become very egocentric and self-ambitious. And they're going to start doing things that benefit them. And they're going to be arrogant. And they're going to be prideful. And they're going to run down other people. And they're going to be disobedient to authority. And they're going to have a sense of entitlement. And they're going to do things that are unholy. And they're going to be unloving and irreconcilable. And I could go on and on and on. But understand this. While self-love is not condemned by God, it's certainly not what you want to be the motivator of the way you live your life. It's not the best love. It's not the first love. No, don't hate yourself. Don't deprecate yourself. Don't run yourself down. But self-love is not to be the motivator for how we walk and how we live. So this is another thing that we see as we define love. This is a statement that's made oftentimes. Love is love. And you know what? Honestly, that means nothing. Love is love. It's like saying up is up and down is down and But but here's what's meant by that. It emphatically implies the assertion that all people are allowed to love whoever they choose in the way they choose, even though many want to deny them this right. In other words, if I love someone, you can't tell me that I can't. And usually this is more in the eros type love, that erotic and romantic love. And, and And first off, understand, God never restricts us from loving with agape love. But there are love, certain loves, that God does say, no, you can't love that. And you can't love them in the way that you want. So, for instance, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. God restricts loving certain things. He says, don't love that. And if you do love that, he says, it's because you don't have the love of God in you. Well, the love of God is what we're talking about from Galatians 5, that is the fruit of the Spirit. So we can love something and it removes love from being a fruit of the Spirit, a fruit in our life. And God commands us to love everyone with agape love. He doesn't restrict us from loving, but he does restrict us when it comes to eros love. He restricts us. No, you can't just, love is not just love. You can't just love whoever you want in the way that you want. God restricts us from doing that. Notice Romans 1, 26 to 27. It says, for this reason, this is God, uh, or Paul rather, writing about a society that had rejected God. He says, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. So I want you to think about this. This is that romantic and erotic love. Does God tell a man that he cannot love a man? No, he does not. He does not. Brother Bill got up here and he said, I love you all. Was it wrong for him to say, I love you all? Should he just have said, I love you women? No. It's not wrong for a man to love a man in a godly way. But erotic love that a man has for a man or a woman has for a woman, notice how God defines that. He calls it vile passions. He says it is against nature. He says it is shameful. It is error. So God rejects this idea that love is love and you can love whoever you want, however you want. Yes, we agape love, we spiritually love everyone, but not romantically. And you know what, I think most people, they they see this and they go, yes, we get that. But you know what, sometimes because it doesn't disgust us, we sort of gloss over that there are other areas where God restricts this type of erotic love. And romantic love and that is outside of marriage the Bible says marriage is honorable among all and the bed is undefiled but fornicators and adulterers God will judge what's he saying here did you know what erotic love is great within a marriage it needs to be in a marriage and we're not going to go into great detail about that this morning but God wants there to be romantic and erotic love within a marriage but that's the only arena In which God will sanctify or make holy that union of intimacy if you will but there are areas where God has said no that's not allowable for instance if you're married to someone you can't have a erotic or romantic love for someone else it needs to be only towards your spouse if you're not married to someone well you may be having the feelings of infatuation and romance in your mind but Once you go past that, you start exercising that passion, if you know what I mean. That's against the will of God. And so we are not allowed to exercise love in any way we want with whoever we want in that way. It is restricted by God. And that is certainly not the love that is the fruit of the Spirit. But marriage is honorable. It's an honorable union. It's a union that God set apart at the very beginning when he created man and female. And he said, be fruitful and multiply. He blessed and sanctified that union. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 10. Now, what we're going to do now is we're going to see three types of love that are mentioned in one verse. And to just draw our minds back to where we started, we're going to look at philo love. Philo love or Philadelphia, brotherly love. We're going to look at storgos or storgi love. I know that's a funny word, storgi, but... But that's another kind of love. And then we have the word agape here that's mentioned. And that's the first word that's translated love here. Let love or agape love, spiritual love, be without hypocrisy. Let it be genuine. You say, well, what would hypocritical love look like? Well, here's maybe an example. I say, I love you, but I hate you with my deeds. That's hypocrisy. Or maybe when I see you, I go, hey, man, it's great to see you. I love you. And then they leave our presence and we turn to somebody and say, I can't stand that guy. That's hypocritical. That's pretending. It's it's putting on a performance here front. Let love be genuine, he says. And you need to avoid or hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And then he says this, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. (coughs) So this is somewhat reductive. Redundant in some ways. Kindly affectionate with brotherly love. So this is philo storgos. And this is Philadelphia. So phila phila. But here's the difference. Kindly affectionate doesn't mean be kind. It's like kindred or he's my kin. It has to do with familial connections. And it's that instinctual or natural love that parents have for their kids. We typically would look at someone who doesn't love their children and think there is something really really wrong with that person because that's a natural love that we have right a parent loves their kids and and it, it sort of puzzles us when we see a parent who just doesn't want their children doesn't love their children that that puzzles us because naturally instinctually we love our kids right and so he says when it comes to our brothers and sisters in Christ you need to have that kind of love You need to naturally love each other, instinctually love each other. And you know what? Sometimes we're just not very lovable, are we? We're not very lovable. So how do you get past that to where you naturally and instinctually love? Well, you have to understand that you're brothers and sisters. And so you have to view each other in the right way. So you're never going to have that instinctual love until what? Until you recognize your relationship. So let me give you an example this way. Sometimes kids... You know They're removed from their parents or their kids put them up for adoption when they're babies because they're young or they get in some situation, whatever the case. And then maybe 18 years later, that kid comes and searches them out and they find their parent and they begin to see their parent for the first time. And and it's weird and it's kind of messy, but all of a sudden tears come out. Why? Because we finally recognized who our parent was. We got to see them in their face and they see their child and it's all of a sudden the realization of who they are It triggers that instinct, that instinctual love. So until we start viewing each other properly, as you are a valuable, that's what honor means, value, until I value you as a brother, the instinctual love will not come. I have to view you correctly. And the incorrect view is, y'all are a bunch of people that I come to church with. That's the wrong view. Is that true? Yes. But we don't come to church. We are the church. We are family. We are truly the sons and daughters of God. And that means we're going to spend eternity with one another. I mean, we don't want to spend moments with each other, but we want to spend eternity with each other. we got to get past some of those things and and put up with each other and, and be able to overlook the little personality nuances that we have and view each other properly as family. And then the instinctual love comes. But you know what? Even the instinctual love can be dangerous. It can be dangerous without the proper filter. So Colossians 3.12 says this, Therefore is the elect of God, that's you and me, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond perfection these are passages that are calling us to unity and at that time you had two vastly different cultures there was racism in the church because of Jew and Gentiles coming together and he says here's how you're going to overcome that here's how you're going to get past those cultural differences you're going to start doing these things now if you look on this list you'll notice a lot of these things are the direct opposite of what we saw in 2 Timothy 3 when it talked about self-love about pride and being boastful and being slanderers and being harsh and lovers of money and all those things. So these are also, you see a lot of the fruits of of the Spirit up here as well in this same list. And what's he describing here? Brotherly love. That's what he's describing. Brotherly love. Love each other like family. (coughs) So let's look at it this way. All of these represent a different type of love. Self-love and erotic love are more carnal in nature. They're more fleshly in nature. And then as you start to move up a little bit, you have this instinctual and philo-type love, which is really about more about feelings and emotions. And you've got agape love, which is purely spiritual love. Now, I, I wanted to look at this this way because... Again, none of these things are wrong in and of themselves, but they must be guided and directed by the top one. And so there could be sometimes that even these two, which are real important, could be out of bounds. They could be wrong. The way we exercise them could be wrong if they're not guided by this one right here. So maybe that's confusing. Let's let's talk about it from Scripture. So above all these things, all what things? Humility, kindness, meekness, gentleness, all those things put on love. So he says that needs to be at the top. At the top of all these things needs to be agape love, spiritual love. That's the bond of perfection. What binds us together? It's not just our faith, brothers and sisters. It's not just our faith. It's the love that we share with one another and the love that we show one another. It's a choice that we make to love each other. That's what binds us together. That's what unites us. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 6. And this is the list from Colossians 3 2 that we just read. He says, Love, that's agape love, suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked or resentful. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. So when we talk about spiritual love, here's what it is. It's it's clearly defined. It, it has its, love is a fruit of the Spirit, but love has its own fruits. You can judge what kind of love it is by the fruit that it bears. And here's the fruit that it bears. And notice, some of these things are identical to the list from Colossians 3. That's why above all these things, put on love. Because if you put on love first, those things are natural. If I love you more than me, humility is not going to be something that I'm really having to fight and struggle against. It's just there. Forgiveness is just there. Uh, me being kind to you, it's just there. Why? Because we have put love on first, and this is what love does. Love, it flows outwardly. And when it flows outwardly, this is what it looks like. It looks like these things. So as Jesus says a new commandment, I give to you that you love one another. What word did he use? Agape. Agape. Now get it, brotherly love is important. It's vastly important. But the word that he uses here is agape. And this wasn't necessarily about their affection. He wanted them to have that. and That's taught in other places. But here he's telling them, I want you to love one another like or as I have loved you. He said, I've given you an example. I've showed you how to love and that's how I want you to love. And so this is an extremely high calling. Not just that you love your neighbor as yourself, but you love your brother as Christ loves you. That's huge, because how I love myself is not nearly as high of a standard as how Christ loves me. It's a much greater standard. Well, how did Christ love us? First John chapter four, verses seven through 11. He says, "Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love, listen, does not know God. You can read your Bible every day. You can pray to God every day. You can give your body to be burned and, give, and sell all your stuff and give it to the poor. But at the end of the day, if you don't love, you don't know God. That's pretty simple, isn't it? It's pretty clear. Without loving, we don't know God. Why? Because God is love. How can you know God who is love and not know love? Doesn't work. He is love. And he says, in this The love of God was manifest. That is, it was displayed or it was exhibited or made known. It was made known toward us that God sent His only begotten Son in the world that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That type of love is the love that I exhibit even when the feelings aren't there. Even when I don't really look at you as my brother and I don't feel like you're my brother, I love you anyway. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. That's the love that he exhibited. It's not always about the affections and feelings. Those need to be present, but when they're not, what do you do? You love despite the feelings. It's a choice. It's an action. You might say it this way, love's not a noun, it's a verb. It's something I do, it's something I choose to do. And that's what God did, that's what Jesus did. So, how in the world could these things ever be in opposition to each other? Sometimes it is. Family love sometimes opposes godly love. Now, I've just come up with a few examples. Love does not envy. That's what we just read in 1 Corinthians 13. Well, does family love ever envy? Absolutely. You ever seen parents get mad because their kid wasn't a starter on the team? Why do they do that? Is it really because their kid deserves a spot? Is it really because their kid's good enough to be there? Or is it just because it's their kid? A lot of times it's just because it's their kid. Now, I'm not saying that never happens, but, but you understand sometimes that instinctual love, that what we call mama bear syndrome, I guess sometimes, it's not always a guide for objective truth. And so sometimes we may envy out of family love, but he says love doesn't envy. Love does not behave itself rudely. I was talking with a retired teacher a few days ago in Coleman, and I said, well, how did you like teaching? And she said, well, I taught in university and I taught in elementary school. And I said, well, which one did you like better? She said, oh, I like university. And I said, really? I said, that kind of surprises me. She said, oh, I love the kids. It's the parents that I didn't like. <laughs> and you know why? Because the parents would come in when their kid was acting like a heathen or a monster, and they would come in and say, how dare you talk to my, my, is my kid? You're the problem. My kid's not the problem. You know why? Because sometimes family love it clouds our judgment and even causes us to be rude to people. It clouds our judgment. And so it's, it's, not, it's not the same always as what we read about in 1 Corinthians 13 of spiritual love. What about love does not seek its own? We see this in Scripture. Over here in Matthew chapter 20, we see the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. He said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. Whew. How'd that turn out? They all got mad. The other 10 got mad at James and John because their mom showed up and said, I want the best for my kid." Well, who doesn't want the best for their kids? Who doesn't want that? You get the point? If that family love is not guided by agape love, sometimes it takes us out of bounds because God never allows us to go outside the bounds of spiritual love. Everything, it's at the top. And lastly, I want to think about this. Does love ever rejoice in iniquity? Spiritual love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. And sometimes family love, it clouds that. We see this in Scripture as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> he says, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as it's not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. Now, this was not this man's mother, but that doesn't excuse it. It's no better. This is sexual immorality of the, of the grossest kind, if you will. And he says, we don't even see people that are heathens doing this kind of thing. Now, what we call this, we call it eros. It's eros. That's that kind of love. He had a passion for something that was outside the bounds. And so they looked at this and they went, well, he's our brother. And, and we're going to be tolerant of it. And so he says, you're puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Well, that's not very loving, is it, to remove someone from you? He says, you're puffed up about this. Well, what did we just read earlier in 1 Corinthians 13? Love is not puffed up. Well, why do you say that? Because of the problem that was going on here in chapter 5. He says, that's not love. Love is a solution to this problem, but that's not love to be puffed up. And he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such in one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And then look at verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Here's what he says. Your acceptance and tolerance of the sin of this person is not good. I have no doubt they thought they were being loving by being kind and being accepting and being patient. But here's what Paul says, your glory is not good, and here's why. It's this verse right here. Where do we start? Spirit and flesh. There's a war, right? And so here's what we do. Let's think this being loving. This person in their spiritual war is overcome by Satan overcome by temptation and is in the grips in captivity to lust and we go yes do it some more and we think that's loving what's more important for that person to be right in a right relationship with God or to be in a right relationship with me and so I sacrifice their relationship with God to maintain my relationship with them why family love and what's the end You could have a good relationship with with them for the rest of their life. And if they end up being at odds with God, you lost. And that's not very loving, is it? It's not loving at all. It may be familial love, but it's not spiritual love. And so what I want us to notice is after this man repented, it worked, by the way. It worked for them to remove him and say, hey, look, we love you, but, but you can't be here anymore. And we can't associate with you as long as you continue to do this. This man repented. And he came back, and you know what Paul had to say? He said, now you've got to love him. And that may be equally as hard. When somebody does something that really, really disgusts us or, or, or hurts us or something, or, or we see them you know, in something like what this man was involved in, and then they repent and him go, all right, now love him. I told you to do this for a moment. Now I want you to do this. I want you to be accepting, because they turned. And so, once the relationship was restored with God, he said, I want you to restore the brotherly relationship too. And he said, You don't want to continue to punish this person. The, the, the punishment which was inflicted on this person for his repentance, he said, That was sufficient. But now I want you to do the opposite. I want you to forgive and comfort him, lest such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. You know what happened if they wouldn't have accepted this man back? He went right back in the grips of Satan, right back in the grips of Satan. And all this that he told them to do, it had nothing to do with us trying to maintain a personal relationship. It had to do with the value of one person's soul. And that's spiritual love. It values each and every individual soul first. So as we close, I want to read one more passage with you. Paul says, this I pray that your love, that's agape love, may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment again it needs to be overarching what you know and what you judge and what you decide in life it has to be governed by and guided by love and not just love abounding love why so you can approve the things that are excellent so that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of christ and being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by jesus christ you know what those are the fruit of the spirit. He said, you've got, to be, you've got to allow love to govern everything so that you're filled with the right kind of fruit. And that matters. And this really matters to the glory and praise of God. Love glorifies God. True, spiritual, biblical love glorifies God. And if, if anything that we call love doesn't glorify God, it's not love. It's not true love. Maybe a type of love. Maybe something we call love. But spiritual love glorifies and praises God. So I want to ask you to do something as we close. We read this list of all of love's fruits earlier. And I think it's good for us sometimes to have a a litmus test, if you will, a way that we can look at our life and say, am I implementing that fruit of the Spirit in my life? And so rather than saying love is this, love is that, I want you to think about yourself. Put your own name in the place of love there as we look at these questions love is patient are you patient are you kind are you envious do you do things that draw attention to yourself is that your ambition in life to make you look good to everybody look at you he said love doesn't parade itself around you know what that i think of a peacock (laughs) you ever seen what a peacock does They'll, they'll be walking around making that weird noise and that weird walk, and all of a sudden they, they'll see and they'll go woof and throw those feathers out and start strutting. Look at me. That's not what love does. Are you prideful? Because he said love is not. Love is not boastful. Love doesn't behave itself rudely. Do you behave yourself rudely? Do you do things out of selfish ambition? Because he said love does not seek its own. Love is not easily provoked. Well, I'll tell you, that's a hard one sometimes, isn't it? People do things that upset us, that hurt us, and what do we do? Well, we bite back at them. But love doesn't do that. Love's not resentful. Are you, are you more inclined to forgive someone? Are you more inclined to hold grudges? Sometimes familial love hurts that too, doesn't it? You know, it's puzzling to me that oftentimes the people that love us the most are the people that hurt us the worst. And they're the people we have the hardest time forgiving. You know that that's always puzzled me, but perhaps we hurt the people that love us the most because we know they're the most forgiving. They're inclined to love us anyway. And if we're really truly a family, that's what we need to do with one another. Be forgiving. Because that's what love does. It forgives. It's not resentful. Love does not certainly doesn't glorify in sin. It doesn't glorify in sin. It doesn't make excuses for it. It doesn't justify it. It doesn't matter who does it. It's just wrong because God said it's wrong. And that's what love does. Love rejoices in the truth. Friends, I hope that the lesson has been helpful to you in some way as we try to live our lives walking in the Spirit and we try to view what our responsibility is and how we love one another. And this, this is a huge discussion. and I, I know we just barely covered a corner of the room. But I hope this has been helpful to you in some way. If you're compelled by the love of God today because of what his son did and you want to obey the gospel, we want to help you do that. And if, if you're here today and your heart is heavy, if you're feeling weak, if you're having trouble with, with some of the things we've talked about this morning, come to God, come to the Savior. Let them help you, let them strengthen you, let them heal you. And we will take that need before them and put it at their feet. Come have a seat on the front as we stand and we sing.